Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you turn to Matthew chapter 1. There's also Bibles available to you in the pew. We're going to be wrapping up this Unlikely Vessels series today. We've had three weeks and then also the Christmas Eve service in this series. And today we, we close things up understanding the story and the life of King David and this lady named Bathsheba. We're going to be walking through their story. And if I were to take a moment to kind of recap this series over the last month, you've got some uh, signs and stuff over here. And if this is your first message with us in this series, I want to just break a few of these things down. This sign over here says, what I've done, and then this other one says, what he did. And oftentimes people think that they can get right with God based on the things that they do. If I just do this, then maybe God will have favor on me. If I just do that, then maybe I can get to heaven. You know, we have this thought process of somehow earning God's favor by the things that we do. And it's important to know that it's what Christ did on the cross that gives us right standing with God. It's what He did. It's by His shed blood that you and I are forgiven of our sins when we reach out to Christ in that way. And it's the standing of righteousness is based off of what He did. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. And because He lived perfectly and He gave His life as a sacrifice for our sin, when we receive Christ, we receive His covering over our sin nature, over our sinful life, and we're made right with God. Another message that I gave, it talked about the labels that we have. You know, we talked about Tamar, and she was known as the prostitute. And Rahab, also known as the prostitute. And Matthew was known as a tax collector. And people didn't like tax collectors. Okay? And we look at labels we have today. There's a variety of sin issues that people struggle with and what that label can be for other people. But understanding that in Christ, the label that He gives us is the label forgiven. Again, it's by what He did, not what we do, that makes us right with God. And Christ forgives us of our sins, and that is who God sees. He sees the perfection of Christ when He is in our life. And we've been breaking down this genealogy that you see in Matthew chapter 1. And you've got these names. And to understand in history that if we're going to have a genealogy of a king, we want to make it as prestigious as possible. And as Matthew's breaking this genealogy down, he's pulling out people where you're going, why would you include them? Tamar ends up having twins from her father-in-law. That's twisted. And she makes it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab is this outsider. She's a Canaanite woman, and God lets her come into the Israelite camp. And not only this evil woman, but this Canaanite prostitute ends up being a part of the story and the line of Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And sometimes there's things in life that we're in a mess because of decisions that we made, but then sometimes we're in a mess just simply because of the sin issue that's in our world. 
and we're broken, and it can be things that we didn't even do, but yet we're walking through difficult circumstances. And that was Naomi and Ruth's story, and yet God's weaving something in the midst of all the pain and the heartache. And in their story, they end up having this son or this grandson that, again, would be in the line of Jesus Christ. So we've been looking at these stories, and today we land on one that we'll simply call the mistake. How many of you have ever made a mistake before? By show of hands. Okay. Raise your hand. Thank you. I think we've leveled the playing field. We're all mistake makers. We've made mistakes before. And we're going to walk through this story, and I think you're going to see this individual that was rising, and God was doing incredible things in his life, and then he makes a mistake. But before we get into God's word and break this down, would you join me in prayer as we just ask the Lord to speak into our hearts and lives? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. And Father, I ask that you would lead us and guide us by your spirit. Lord, you have given us your word to instruct us and to show us your heart. And I just ask that you would cause us to receive from you today and also to respond. And we thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to break down this genealogy, Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you can go back to week two of this series and learn about Tamar, the prostitute. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, same message. You can learn about her life. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. That was last week's message. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. That's where we're going to stop there in Matthew 1. And we're going to pick up that story if you turn to 2 Samuel 11. But before we read from 2 Samuel 11, I want to kind of give you some backdrop here. Israel wanted a king. And the prophet Samuel, with that reluctancy of understanding that, God, I thought you were the king, but the people want a king like all these other nations. And so they end up getting a king, and his name is Saul. And Samuel, the prophet, is somebody that would come to Saul and speak into his life. If there were things that Saul were doing that weren't pleasing to the Lord, Samuel would be that good friend that comes and says, look, you need to figure this out and start doing things differently because this is not pleasing to the Lord. Meanwhile, while that relationship is going on, there's this young man by the name of David. And he's got some brothers. 
brothers that are real strong and more like warriors and guys that would go into battle, and David's this just meek shepherd boy, kind of like watching things back at the family farm while the brothers went off to battle. But in 1 Samuel 16, the Bible says that people judge by outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord saw something in David. And we're looking for who the next king is going to be. And so in 1 Samuel 16, as David stood there among his brothers, the prophet Samuel anointed him. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David that day. You go to the very next verse, because of disobedience that was going on in King Saul's life, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord left him. The Spirit falls upon this young boy named David, and the Spirit of God leaves King Saul. You see things happening here in this story. I mean, you know of this young David, shepherd boy, anointed to be king. How many of you heard that famous story, David and Goliath? Young teenage boy rolling in to give his brothers some food for the battle, and he sees this giant of a man mocking the nation of Israel and these soldiers, but even worse, he's cursing their God. And David has a problem with that. And David ends up addressing this giant, even going out into the battle and saying things like, I come at you in the name of the Lord. And you think the, the courage that David had, the faith that David had, this young man facing this giant that grown soldiers were too intimidated to go face. And David steps up to the battle. Well, when the spirit left Saul, he's tormented by demonic spirits. And David is a musician, and he's able to soothe Saul. And so Saul would like him to be, if you will, playing music to help him feel better. But after David defeats Goliath, the people really rally around David. And they start saying things about David that make Saul jealous. Now Saul wants to kill David. And he's chasing them all over the country to try to kill him. He's unsuccessful. There was even a couple of times when David had the opportunity to kill Saul himself. But we've learned what kind of man David is. He's an honorable man, and he does not take the opportunity to kill the king when the opportunity arose. Well, Saul eventually dies and David rises into power, and he is the king. I give you this backdrop so you understand how honorable of a man this was. And to help us realize that even the most honorable of people can make mistakes. Even the people that have been used incredibly by God can make a decision that causes everything around them to start to crumble. And so in 2 Samuel 11, let's start walking through where things go south. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, kings would go with the army. David sent Joab, that'd be the general, 
and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed back in Jerusalem. And if you're one to write in your Bible, underline, circle, what have you, go ahead and just underline that. David stayed back in Jerusalem. And it was during that time in which kings would normally go out into the battle that his army was a part of. Well, late afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty, and she was taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife, the wife of Uriah. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And to take things a little bit further, she becomes pregnant. David messed up. Another man's wife taking her for himself. David's like, we got to fix this. We got to try to cover this up. You know, sometimes with sin, we don't want to be caught, we don't want to be exposed, and so then what do we do? We try to cover it up. Only that probably makes matters worse, doesn't it? Well, David sends word to the general, Joab. He says, send me Uriah. And so Uriah comes back, and they begin to talk about how the war is going. David and Uriah are having this conversation. And what do you think's going through David's mind while they're talking? I made a huge mistake. But we're talking about other things. And meanwhile, David's trying to figure out a way to cover this up. One thought is, I just brought this man home from battle. He hasn't seen his wife in a while. Go home, Uriah. Go spend time with your wife. So he tells him to go home and relax and even send him off with a gift. But Uriah didn't go home. Instead, he slept at the palace entrance. He was being honorable to the men that he served with in the army. And David's confused. Why wouldn't you go home to see your wife? And he's going, these men that I serve with, they're out there sleeping in tents. And who am I to come home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife when these men that I serve with are out there sacrificing their lives? You talk about an honorable man. Well, David tries to still make this happen, gets Uriah drunk, and even tries to convince him again, you know, go home. And, but even in the midst of that, Uriah stays faithful to those men, and he stays the night again at the palace entrance. So David, his first cover-up doesn't work. So he goes to a second 
option. And he sends Uriah back into battle with a letter to give to the general Joab. Joab receives this letter, opens it up, and reads that we need to send Uriah to the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. And I want you to pull back and leave that man vulnerable so that he's killed. And that's exactly what happens, and Uriah the Hittite is killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And now David, in his attempt to cover up his sin, he has innocent blood on his hands. Now when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when that period of mourning was over, David sent for her, and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. At the end of that verse 27, the Bible says that the Lord was displeased with what David had done. This honorable man makes a huge mistake, and this just snowballs. Poor decision after poor decision. He's not confronting the sin issue. And it's getting worse and worse. Now remember, King Saul had a prophet to speak into his life. His name was Samuel. Well, David also had a prophet that spoke into his life, and his name was Nathan. And I think God told Nathan what was going on. And Nathan comes in and he confronts David and he does it with a bit of a story. And he tells him, you know, there's this story, this rich man and this poor man, and the rich man has all of these animals, a part of his flock, and this poor man, all he had was one little baby lamb. And he loved this lamb. And he would let this lamb even like eat from his plate and drink from his cup, which kind of sounds weird, but that's how much he loved this little lamb. And he'd even hold it like a baby and just loved this thing like a daughter. And one day the rich man has some guests over. And in a, an attempt to show hospitality, let's make some food, but instead of choosing animals from his own flock, he goes and he steals that little lamb from the poor man and uses that for the meal. And David is enraged. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, David says, As surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And it's almost like Nathan probably got up right in his face and said, David, you're that man. You are that man. Then he begins to tell him that the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you, David, as king of Israel, and I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and if that had not been enough, I'd have given you much, much more. 
Why then have you despised the word of God and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites, and you have stolen his wife. Just like this poor man and that lamb that was stolen. David is the guilty one. And this judgment is given to David. He says, from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. You know, sin carries consequences. And it doesn't just affect you, it affects other people. And you see this turmoil start to happen in David's own household because of this judgment that he's brought upon his life. David has a son... He also has a daughter. And one of the issues that take place is this son, he's so passionate about this daughter that he wants to be with her. And knowing that that would be wrong, he just chooses one day in a rage of lust, he rapes his own sister. There's another son of David, and he sees this go down, and he's upset about it, and he gets angry about it, and he finds a way to get this brother killed. And so David loses a son. But this other son, he fulfills that prophecy that was just spoken, that in open view of the whole city, someone from your own home is going to take your own wives and have their way with them for everyone to see. His own son fulfills that prophecy on the same place where this all started, on the rooftop of the palace. Can you think back to when David was where he wasn't supposed to be? And he's on that rooftop, and his eyes are roaming. He sees something that's not his. And that's where it all went downhill. David is crushed by his decisions. There comes a point when we make mistakes in life where we have to say, I'm sorry. Or we just keep moving forward in our own stubbornness and rebellion. And David is crushed by his actions. And he says to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. He realizes the wrong, and he wants to do something about this. And you remember these labels, forgiven? Listen to what Nathan tells David in the very next statement. He goes, yes, you have sinned against the Lord, but the Lord has forgiven you.
He does say that because you've shown contempt for the word of the Lord, your child, though, will die. And David begs God to spare the life of this child, this child that Bathsheba is carrying. But seven days later, this child dies. The Bible gives us this confession that David has with the Lord in Psalm 51. And I want to read this to you. It's a very personal moment between David and the Lord for everything that he's done and the things that are happening in his life. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion, and it haunts me day and night. You know, something about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you can't turn it off. So when you know you're in the wrong, the Holy Spirit continues to weigh upon you, and this weight that you feel is this need to make it right, to confess your sin, and to do something about it. And he says, this weight, it's on me, day and night. He says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And then he says, give me back my joy again. And then he says, you've broken me. Now let me rejoice. So we come to that place of confession, and that's a very hard thing to do. But when you let that weight off of you, you're able to breathe again. You're able to actually have the joy of the Lord again. He says, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Remember that verse of the Holy Spirit coming powerfully upon David? And in the very same verse, you see the Spirit being removed from Saul. And David is pleading with God, don't remove your spirit from me. You know, Saul had the spirit of God removed because of his hardness of heart and his rebellion. And Samuel tried to speak into his life, and he says some pretty powerful things right before the spirit left Saul. And he says... What's more pleasing to the Lord, Saul, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? You know, people, we come to church sometimes and we try to cover up the mess that's going on. And we think we're punching some kind of card, like God was pleased with the fact that I was there on Sunday, but the rest of my life is lacking obedience. And that is what God desires. He wants obedience day in and day out. 
Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is bad as worshiping idols. God wants obedience. He wants submission unto him. And the Bible tells us that God also wants us, that we're in the wrong when we're doing things that are offensive to God. God wants us to come to him with a broken heart and with repentance. And I want to take a moment to break down that word repentance because we think that means like I feel sorry, right? If I'm feeling repentant, I'm, I'm like maybe I'm crying. Like, look, Lord, I'm, I'm crying, okay? The word repent means to change. So that's what God wants. He wants the broken heart, but he wants the change in your life. That's what God wants to do with the sin issues in our life. He wants the change to take place. I'm going to tell you this right now. You can't change without the power of God at work in your life. I was in a counseling session one time with an individual who was a drug addict, and I was counseling another person struggling with drugs. And this individual was able to bring perspective into this situation that I could not. But one of the things he said that at first I was like, no, wait a second. He goes, he tells the other individual, don't ever try to quit drugs again. And I was like, you're going to have to explain what you mean by that. And the point he was trying to make is, you try to do these things on your own, it's not going to happen. you got to give this to the Lord and let Him break the sin issue in your life. David finishes Psalm 51, a couple verses before the end. He says, God, you don't desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one and you don't want a burnt offering. What do you think God wants from David? Repentance. He says, the sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. David confesses, he repents, and God brings forgiveness into his life. The story goes on in 2 Samuel 12. Bathsheba, his wife, he comforts her, and they become pregnant again, and they give birth to a son by the name of Solomon. And you think of all the stuff that's happened in their marriage. The things that they've done, the mistakes that have been made, the heartache that has been shared, this mess that they're in. And the Bible says that God loved this child, Solomon. What a picture of God's grace and forgiveness and his goodness in our lives. That if we screw up, God's not like, I'm just done with you. God still wants to be involved in our life. Isn't that reassuring? I don't know about you, but I could probably screw up here before the end of the service. But God's grace and his forgiveness is available to me. 
the prophet Nathan comes and says, you should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. It's just remarkable, God's grace in the midst of this. And we look at these broken people's lives and we come back to that question that I end each message with through this series. Why would God bring broken people into this genealogy of Jesus Christ? And it's because that is the very reason why Jesus came. He came for broken people. And in Matthew 1.21 it says that he came to save people from their sins. That is why Jesus came. In the passage I read at the beginning of this service, when Jesus' story of his birth is being laid out, I want you to hear something. That there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel of the Lord said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. The Holy Spirit through these angels, they could have said, Today in the town of Bethlehem. I'm not going to say David because we know his story. He's pretty screwed up, right? God still uses broken people to even tell the story of the Savior. So as God brings healing into our life, He says, I don't want to just heal you, I want to use you to bring my message of forgiveness to other people. And if you know more of David's life, I mean, his, some of his final words are inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded in Scripture. God is using him. And even later in Scripture, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And one of the main reasons with that is because when he screwed up, he brought it to the Lord and said, I'm sorry, and I want to change. He still had to deal with the fallout, the consequences with his family, and all of those things. But his relationship with God God was still at work, even in the midst of the mess. So at the beginning of this series, I talked to you about this vase that was shattered in all kinds of pieces. And I talked about how God takes broken lives and he pieces them back together. And so here you have it, the final, the final piece all put together. God heals. What's interesting about this, if you got a close look at this, you can see all the, the glue, right? And sometimes when we're broken and God does the healing, you can see the scars, right? But that's where you can tell people about Christ bringing healing into your life. If I put this on the shelf again at Homespun Collection, how much do you think people would pay for this? They probably wouldn't. I mean, if you put a nice brand new one next to this, they'd say, I'll probably pick the new one. We should try it. There you go. What do you think, Bonnie? Let's give it a shot. Here's the thing. God sees this, and he says, I'm going to give my life for that broken individual. Not only am I going to heal their life, Remember I said that God still wants to use you? 
He doesn't want to heal you just so you're healed, okay? He wants to heal you so that you take his message and you bring it to other people. And if you remember the message at Christmas Eve, I talked about these unlikely vessels of the manger and the cross and then that bonus one. Oh yeah, God wants to live in us. The scripture says he wants to live in your heart. You mean I can have God in my life? The answer to that is absolutely. And so God takes your broken life, he pieces it back together, and then he comes to live in you. And we might leak a little bit, right? We established that we're all mistake makers still, even though Christ is in our life. And here's the thing. Once we're healed and once God is in our life and he wants to do things through us, we go and we find other potential vessels and we begin to pour into their life and tell them about the power of God. And we begin to share that healing love of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness with those around us. What once was useless, pieces that were all over on the ground, today help me pour into other vessels. God wants to use you. Not only did he come to save you from your sin, but I need people to hear this loud and clear. If you feel like your mistakes have caused you to not be effective, like God could never use me, I want to just eliminate that thought right now. God can still use you. And he wants to use you. It's not like he's like wondering who he can put in the game and he's looking down the roster and he's like, ah, get in there, I guess, you know. Let's just all close our eyes and hope something good happens. God wants to use you. He wants to use you to his glory and to his honor. I want to close with just a few points of application today. And the first one, I, I want us to hear this very, very clearly. This whole issue in David's life, it all started because it was where he wasn't supposed to be. Folks, if you're in an environment or you're surrounded by people that aren't helping you make godly decisions there's a decision that you're going to have to make. How long am I going to hang around this environment and continue to walk in the wrong direction? Another thing to note is though, no matter what you've done, God forgives. Please understand that. God forgives, but here's the thing. You know the things you've done. You know that God forgives, but there's another step. People can either settle that, knowing that he forgives, or they run from it. But I want to encourage you to settle that. Settle that. Are you willing to truly repent? That is, to change. Are you really willing to do that? I mean, think of what Christ did for you. Are you willing to actually give him your life? The last thing is just to remember that God can heal all brokenness down to the very last piece. And you're never too far gone for God to use. God uses broken people.
like me and like you. Will you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're a God who heals, you're a God who restores, you're a God who wants to use us in your kingdom. No matter what our story is, no matter our past or even our present, there's things that you want to do in our lives right here and right now and into the future. Father, I just want to allow a moment for everyone listening that if there's something that the Spirit is resonating in your life right now is to just take a moment in this silence and just lift to the Lord the things that are on your heart right now. Father, whatever these matters are, whatever these burdens are or concerns are, I pray that you'd speak into those. Minister to those. Heal those. And use those. And in this moment, Lord, perhaps there's someone that's listening that they've not received you into their life. Maybe today there's something that's been said and your spirit is drawing them into a relationship with you. And it's time to receive the forgiveness of God into your life. If you desire that, I just simply ask that you'd pray with me in your heart and say, Jesus... Today I surrender my life to you. And I'd ask that you'd forgive me of my sin. That you'd cleanse me and make me new. And help me to truly change. To repent and move in a new direction. Today I receive you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for being my Lord and my Savior. And folks, with every head bowed and eye closed, if someone prayed that prayer to receive the forgiveness of Christ into your life and to receive him as your Lord and Savior, would you just simply acknowledge that with me today by simply lifting your hand and then putting it right back down? Thank you. Anyone else? Simply lift your hand up and put it right back down. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer. Make it real for their life. This isn't just a prayer we prayed at church, but this is a transformation of a life. And Lord, I pray that you do supernatural things in the healing process. Thank you, Lord, that you use broken people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you guys to 
Just reflect on all this series has been and this message today that God uses broken people by His grace. I want to invite you to stand as we sing this song of response, closing out this series. I also want to invite the prayer team. If you'd be available here at the front and also in the back corners of the sanctuary for anybody that would desire prayer today. 